Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. Rising costs, GP shortages, long wait times and a reduction in bulk billing are just some of the problems plaguing Australia's public health system. Earlier this month, the Federal Government's Strengthening Medicare Task Force published published its report on where reforms are needed. But it's clear addressing these problems will not be easy, with debates among health professionals about the best way forward. Jennifer Doggett is a health journalist and editor of the website Crokey and joins me now on the line. Welcome, Jennifer. Great to have you on Triple R. Great to be here, Dylan. And so many of our listeners, I'm sure, would have direct experience of of some of those problems in our public health system. But, I mean, how would you characterise the problem as it currently stands? I think there's a range of problems, and as you've identified some of them, there's workforce shortages, there's problems getting in to see GPs, those problems differ um, between regions. So some people have quite good access to GPs, particularly those in the inner city. People in regions, in rural areas, some outer urban areas have problems. There's also problems in relation to funding. So we're not funding GPs in a way that allows them to provide the sort of high quality care that we need. And we're also not supporting a team-based approach to care. So we're channeling most of our funding through general practitioners and we're not Um, providing a system that allows them to work in a team environment, so with other allied health providers such as physiotherapists, psychologists, practice nurses, to provide sort of comprehensive care. So that's the sort of health problems that we have today. Yeah, and and there are issues that haven't emerged overnight. How do you see, I guess, the nature of engagement over the past number of years into some of those more long-running issues that, you know, do take time to address? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Those problems have been around for a long time and there has been a a debate about Medicare basically since Medicare was introduced in the early 80s. And I think one of the reasons for that is that Medicare was designed originally in the 60s, introduced first under Whitlam and then brought back um, in the Hawke era. And so it was really designed for an era where we had quite different healthcare needs. So in the 1960s, Most of the problems that GPs were treating were acute self-limiting conditions such as a minor injury or an infectious disease. And what we see now is that GPs are dealing with much more complex and chronic problems that persist over time, so like a mental illness, an arthritis, diabetes, problems like that, which require a different type of health care. But because reforms to the system are very difficult, it has been very hard to pivot our system from one which would have met our needs perhaps in the 60s, 70s, early 80s, but which isn't meeting our needs today. So these debates have been going on for a while. We've had a number of reviews. Um, listeners might remember the um, healthcare, Hospitals and Healthcare Reform Commission um, in 2008 after... Um, um, the rug government came into power and that that was a broad sort of reform agenda that, that covered GPs as well as hospitals and the whole gamut of the health system. Um, that was just one of the attempts we've had to reform the system, but sadly it has proven very difficult to do and we, the longer we leave it, the worse our health system gets and the, the less able it is to meet our health care needs. So it really is overdue for a, for a major reform. Yeah, and as you say, there's a, a strong sense of postcode inequality here with, you know, some areas um, where it's very difficult to get in to see a GP at short notice, but in some of the major cities, you know, you can find one, you know, generally if you're 
you're willing to pay. Um, one of the issues has been uh, fewer people going into general practice. And, I mean, you mentioned that the nature of the issues that GPs are dealing with are more cl- complex than they might have been in the past. Why do you think it is that, that fewer people are being attracted to that specific kind of, of medical practice? Well, what GPs are telling us is that their work has become more complex. They're feeling like they constantly have to do more with less. They're dealing with a lot of problems which they don't have the ability to solve, so often problems that are broader societal problems. So our inability to um, prevent mental illness, for example, deinstitutionalisation of people from institutions, people with mental illnesses, which is obviously a good thing, but then the, the support sort of fails to follow that into the community. Um, problems with, you know, COVID related to people feeling isolated, um, problems with public health, so rising rates of obesity leading, leading to chronic conditions. These are all problems that are outside of GPs' ability to control, but we're asking them to deal with the fallout. So I think GPs are telling us that they feel unsupported and stressed, um, and that's obviously not a recipe for a happy work environment, and so many of them are choosing to enter other other specialties. And general practice is also um, remunerated le- at a lower level than many other medical specialties, so the relativities of where we spend Medicare, they t- it tends to sort of over-reward um, procedural specialties, which, again, when Medicare was set up, were more complex, but these days the sort of work done by GPs, that diagnostic care coordination, um, more um, intense cross-disciplinary work is rewarded less, even though it probably has a higher level of complexity, certainly from when it was um, Medicare was first established. Yeah, and and I suppose to address that on the one hand, you you can change the the way that, you know, GPs might be the first port of call for referrals in some instances and that kind of thing and and attempt to to sort of lessen the load. But there's also a role for education and encouraging people to go into this profession where you might be remunerated remunerated less, but potentially have, um, you know, more fulfilment out of seeing people, you know, through through the various stages of their lives and that kind of thing. Is there a need to to look at education of of doctors, people studying medicine and encouraging people to, you know, see being a general practitioner as a worthwhile career? Yeah, I think that's true. Education and training, obviously, very important. Having GP leaders and role models who can... um, yeah, as you said, demonstrate to, to younger GP, to younger medical graduates and, and medical students that general practice can be a rewarding career. I mean, I think what you've highlighted is the need for government to work with the profession mm. and to listen to what the profession's saying about how, how they're feeling, you know, demoralised, stressed, burnt out, because that's not a recipe for um, providing good primary health care or for attracting medical students and graduates into the profession. I mean, it's an incredibly important job. Um, it is important for, for all of us. Having a good primary health care system is absolutely vitally important. So we need you know, the best medical graduates to go into this very important profession. And there's been some reporting both in Guardian Australia and um, the Age and City Morning Herald about bulk billing specifically and and noting a a reduction in bulk billing that's more pronounced in some areas of Australia and and that the the extent of the problem, I suppose, was to some extent concealed through COVID-19 vaccines being administered through that program. We know that cost of living living is a, a massive issue at the moment. How do you imagine that might be addressed? Because people, you know, in in a lot of ways might need some of that relief in the here and now. But if you are having to pay more for for doctor's visits, you might then neglect your healthcare, which can have broader problems, ongoing problems going forward. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's vitally important that people can get in to see a GP and afford to see one when they need to see one, because as you say, if they don't have access to that, then the, their health problems will get worse and that will lead to more expenses down the track. Um, I think, it, it, you know, it's a problematic issue. One of the structural problems with Medicare is that it attaches funding to healthcare providers and there's no um, ability for government to control where they work. And that means that you do get more Medicare funding going to areas where GPs, you know, will choose to live and work, which often are the more affluent suburbs of our cities. And then less Medicare funding goes into areas where GPs don't choose to live and work, which are, you know, outer urban, regional rural and remote areas. And that is one of the structural problems with Medicare, which is one of the issues that's you know, currently being debated through the current reform agenda. So whether there's ways of governments allocating money for, for primary health care, not through Medicare, which would give them more ability to allocate it where, where it's needed and to support those people who um, need to see a GP or are currently having problems. And the other issue I think that's important to recognise is that this is really a problem um, primarily for people with chronic conditions. So, you know, people that see a GP once or twice a year for a you know, non-urgent problem, say a, a flu shot, something like that, it's not really a major problem. But for, for those in the community that have chronic and complex conditions who need to see a GP regularly, particularly families where there might be more than one family member that has a chronic condition, even small changes in the cost of seeing a GP or their availability could have really massive implications. So I think we need to do more to make sure that those people um, are supported and able to have access to care. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking with health journalist Jennifer Doggett, who's also editor of the Crokey website, which is a really great resource for all things um, news and, and, and uh, health policy. I highly recommend you check it out if you haven't already. And, I mean, you mentioned, of course, that the government is looking at reforms. Um, the Strengthening Medicare Task Force released a report earlier this month. There's been, I think, is it $750 million set aside in um, last year's federal budget for the coming years to advance Medicare Medicare reform. How do you see, I suppose, firstly, some of those recommendations coming out of the Strengthening Medicare Task Force in, in addressing some of these many problems? So the recommendations from the task force are very high level. They don't make any specific recommendations about how that money should be spent. They have made recommendations which seem to be broadly supported um, across um, the health sector by you know the medical profession and also by other primary care professionals, allied health nurses, psychologists, etc. Um, what people are saying, though, is that $750 million over three years is insufficient to meet the current need um, for funding in this sector. So because it has been allowed to decline with rebate freezes and inadequate indexation for so long, um, there is a high level of unmet need and $250 million a year for three years won't go far enough to provide the sort of primary care system that we need. So what the experts are saying is that we will need more money than that in the budget and that we need to also be spending it smartly to make sure that it, wherever it's spent, delivers the best possible outcome. So it addresses some of those geographical inequities. It supports GPs to work in teams. It funds allied health, nursing um, nursing services, other services that we need for a team-based approach. And it in particular supports longer consultations and and access for people with chronic conditions who have that higher level of need. And this is all happening, of course, still in the context of a pandemic. And we know COVID-19 has really highlighted and exacerbated some of those existing issues within the, the public health system. What do you make of, of how the government is currently 
dealing with COVID-19? I mean, is there enough emphasis? I know there's been some criticism that given, you know, the spike in deaths and so on, that there, there could be more done given, you know, what we've experienced over the past few years with, with lockdowns and quite, um, you know, strict public health measures and the like. Well, I think like many people who work in the health sector and many journalists, we're a bit baffled by um, the government's, you know, apparent lack of urgency around the COVID deaths that we're experiencing at the moment. We've had more deaths this year than we have had um, in any other year of the pandemic. And it does seem, um, yeah, baffling to me that that's not a higher um, priority and not high, the government's not treating that with a higher degree of urgency. I mean, we know that, that there are some, you know, seemingly fairly straightforward um, strategies that do reduce the risk for people. So, you know, air purifiers and monitoring air quality, air quality standards, mask wearing in crowded places, and yet those don't seem to be being um, emphasised by the government and people, they don't seem to be providing the sort of information and education needed for people to make those sort of safe choices. And I think in particular... Um, you know, I think we need to recognise the impact that it's having on people who are a greater risk, so people who are immunosuppressed, older people, people that have underlying chronic conditions. But I think while the rest of us might be getting on with our lives, I think their lives have been extremely um, curtailed because the rest of us have not been implementing widespread um, infection risk control practices. So I think, you know, while there might be a perception within some government circles that we have moved on from that acute phase of COVID for, I think, a lot of Australians who are at greater risk, that reality is not the case and that they're finding their lives even more restricted now than they were during uh, the earlier phases of the pandemic. Absolutely. And we've got a federal budget coming up in a few months' time. Are you expecting health to be a big priority there and, and expecting or hoping for a greater injection of funds, particularly into addressing and reforming Medicare? Um, yes, always hoping for more funds for <laughs> Medicare. It is an incredibly important resource and I think it is an engine that keeps the rest of our country running. If we're you know, a healthy country, then we can move on and do the other things and be productive um, in other areas of our lives. So, yes, Mark Butler, I think, has said that he will be hoping for a serious Medicare spend in the upcoming budget, so I hope he's successful in getting that out of his, his Cabinet colleagues. And I think I agree with also what he said, that this money needs to be spent smartly, so it's not just a matter of getting a chunk of money ploughing it back through through rebates in a system that we know needs structural reform. It's about getting more money and then spending it smartly to deliver the sort of outcomes that, you know, the Australian community should expect from our health system. Well, well, we'll wait and see what happens there. It's been uh, so great having your insights on The Grapevine this morning, Jennifer. Thanks so much. Great to talk to you, Dylan. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. This Friday marks a full year since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. That initial offensive seemed to take a lot of the world by surprise and while it was then presumed that a Russian attack would quickly overwhelm Ukrainian forces, the country has been resolute in standing its ground. Many thousands of civilians and soldiers have lost their lives and economic and trade repercussions have been felt all over the world. So what can we make of this geopolitical quagmire and what does the conflict reveal about broader political dynamics between the likes of China and the US and their presumed allies? Clinton Fernandez is Professor of International and Political Studies at University of New South Wales and to talk through these issues, Clinton joins me on the line. Welcome, great to have you back on the show, Clinton. Oh, 
Likewise. Thanks for having me on. Absolute pleasure. And I wonder if we can go back to roughly a year ago as Russian tanks were sort of mobilising in the days leading up to that offensive. I mean, could you imagine then that we would be where we are now? Oh, yes. The uh, understanding among people who followed military strategy was that Russia was going to invade. As soon as we saw them doing things like preparing, ex- you know, it's not normal exercises, mm. things like uh, hospitals, uh, blood supplies, transfusions, that is very serious. It's more than just exercising. At that point, it was pretty clear, that, at least to us, uh, that uh, Russia was going to invade. And what about the conflict as it's evolved over the past year or so? I mean, what do you make of, of just, I, I suppose, you know, how Ukrainians have, have galvanised and, and what we've seen in the way that the, the conflict has gone over the past year? Yeah, well, this is one of those rare wars that's been reported, uh, you know, from the perspective of the victims. So that's a, you get a real sense of what it feels like to be on the receiving end of imperial violence. You don't get that in many other conflicts, so this mm. is a good insight. Um, I thought that uh, you know Ukraine was underestimated by the Russian leadership. Uh, they believed that you know we are all one people um, in, in, a, in a kind of a pre-modern way. You know the way uh, Hindu nationalists might say, "Well, the Sikhs aren't really a separate people; they are people." Mm. Um, and they completely misunderstood. The Russians completely misunderstood the strength of Ukrainian nationalism, and so uh, as well as the Western resolve, you know, to supply them with the the wherewithal to resist. So in that respect, it's been fine. It's also exposed, I think, uh, the sclerosis in the Russian military. Namely, people were promoted uh, and doctrine was was brought in on the basis of what was convenient rather than what was effective. Uh, but wars have a, you know, a, a clarifying character to them. Uh, and, and I think in the future, you know, Russia will be a much more militarily savvy power than the top-down, very slow-to-react leadership that they've shown so far. You wrote in a really interesting article for Arena last year that an era came to an end in 2022. I wonder if you can talk about what that era was and and what marked its end. Oh, yeah, sure. Look, I mean, that's that's the most important question, really. I mean, uh, yes, certainly the the tragedy that's going on in Ukraine is, is important to talk about, but uh, you know, we're looking to the future, the rest of this decade and beyond. Uh, the era I'm talking about is what might be called neoliberalism, which begins in the 1970s, and that involves, you know, privatizing things, selling things off, connecting uh, production across borders, so that you know, uh, some some things are produced in one country, in other parts of a, of a car in another country, and then they're all connected via supply chains, and and plus, you know, uh, more things like. Uh, the financialization of the economy where banks suddenly became far more important uh, than the actual manufacturing of the service you know, industry. Now, that, if, if, if the neoliberalism begins in the 70s, I think it came to an end in 2022. Last year was basically the death knell. You, you have uh, the, the pandemic firstly exposed the, the fragility of global supply chains. And now that uh, Russia invaded Ukraine, uh, you've got problems with all kinds of supplies, you know, fertilizers to make food. Um, and to grow, to grow uh, crops, wheat, which is uh, you know a huge export for both Ukraine and Russia, uh, all kinds of things like that. But it also has shown that among the global South, the you know formerly what's called the Third World, uh, there's been a, a divergence of perception and interests. You know, they, their attitude seems to be neither their war nor their peace. So they don't want, you know, they don't agree with Russia, but they aren't going along with uh, the rest of the you know Northern Europe. Uh, and the United States, and thinking that this is their conflict as well. So, in a way, you've seen a fragmented world. If 
if the point of, of a neoliberal world order with international trade, trade agreements and treaties and globalization was to bring the world together, uh, albeit under corporate and state control, you know, not genuine people-to-people engagement, uh, well, I think we've seen an end to that. That, that is definitely the end. And now, now the question is, well, what happens next, you know? Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting insight, I think, because you write it, and this sort of picks up on, on many of the themes explored in your book from last year about Australia's role on the international stage. And, and you know, you, um, you put forward that label of Australia as a sub-imperial power and, and our kind of deference, I suppose, to the United States in our international affairs decision-making and the like. But there's yeah. a sense that, that states yeah. in the global well, south have, have kind of, you know, seen the repercussions of aligning themselves with... Uh, a state like the United States that has acted imperialistically and that that might not necessarily serve their interest any more than aligning with a, an outwardly aggressive country like Russia. So how do you see that position of, of, of neutrality, I suppose, uh, presenting a, a new kind of international politics in the future? I mean, what does that kind of look like for trade interconnectedness and, and alliances? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Look, I mean, that, that, you're, you're right. I mean, I, I wish more people in the, in the media were discussing this matter. You know, the most populous countries like China, India, Brazil, Indonesia, these are, you know, the most populous countries in, in, in the world. Pakistan, you know, Bangladesh, even Turkey, which is a NATO member, they aren't participating in all this. And I think we're seeing a, a, a return of what used to be called non-alignment. But in the past, uh, you know, in the 50s and 60s, non-alignment was based on this idea of uh, South-South cooperation, but also these were newly independent countries. Well, that was all 70 years ago. And the new alignment of, you know, along these lines is more along trade. So when you have what's called the political West, which might be the United States, Canada, Britain, and the Northwestern European countries, they are a military alliance as much as an economic alliance. But the political East, if you like, you know, the global South, is more trade. So when you see these countries coming together, they don't really talk about military strategy. They just talk about economic integration and trade and development. So you've got the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, the Belt and Road Initiative, and a whole bunch of other uh, South-type initiatives, you know, in which India is reaching out to the west, uh, to the east coast of Africa uh, and to the northwestern Indian Ocean, into uh, United Arab Emirates, uh, Oman, Saudi Arabia. Uh, And all these countries have just simply refused to, to go along with sanctions. You know, India's uh, been buying huge amounts of oil from Russia uh, simply because it's getting a discount. It's not taking any notice of Western sanctions. And I think the new energy order is is one basis of uh, a realignment of global politics. But there is another order, and this goes back to the point about the United States being an imperial country. When I say imperial, I I don't mean in the sense of an empire with a formal colony and, and an emperor at the top, but rather imperialism is about the control of other countries' sovereignty. Um, and that sovereignty can be controlled by physical occupation, as in the past with the British Empire in India, or it can be controlled through the threat of, threat of force, intelligence operations, free trade agreements, intellectual property rights, all of these curtail sovereignty. So what the United States is trying to do now, and this has not been understood, is the United States is actually trying to uh, use the Ukraine-Russia conflict by doing the right thing by supporting Ukraine, which I, I think any country that's been invaded should be given the way with all to defend itself. But what it's really trying to do in a broader, the objective beyond the war, is actually to subordinate um, the advanced northwestern European industrial countries uh, in order to better confront China. So you're trying to weaken Europe and weaken uh, the, the European Union as an economic power. 
um, in order to better confront China. It wants to prevent Eurasian integration, the, the integration of Europe and Asia via China's Belt and Road Initiative. Um, and this has been going on for quite some time. I mean, to weaken the European Union, even President Trump, because he had the instincts but not the organizational plan. His instincts were to support Brexit and other Eurosceptic forces. And he imposed tariffs on steel imports and tariffs on aluminium imports. Um, and he did it using the national security clause you know, of the international treaties, not the GATT, the General Agreement on, Tra on Tariffs and Trade Safeguard Clauses. Uh, he also sanctioned Huawei. So he focused on trade, whereas what President Biden is doing is, uh, is more competent, he's more organized, and he wants full-spectrum dominance. Uh, they, both, they both want to stop the European Union becoming a third pole in the U.S. confrontation with China. You know, you know, the United States government does not want Europe to be an independent force. Rather, it wants to, it to be a subordinate actor so that the, you know, the United States can better confront China with a subordinated Europe. Um, and that's basically what the, the U.S. aims are in this, in this long, uh, drawn-out conflict. Super fascinating insight. Speaking with Clinton Fernandez, Professor of International and Political Studies at University of New South Wales, um, about the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which will be marked this Friday, and ongoing implications for kind of geopolitics and, and the way that, that politics and trade, I suppose, um, is done across the world in the years going forward as well. And, and you touch on the role of Germany in all this in, in that article for Arena that I mentioned earlier. I mean, given that sort yeah, of your, sure. your analysis of the United States and and what they're sort of attempting to do with, with the EU and, and, and making countries in Europe kind of subordinate to, to their interests. Where does that leave Germany, which has been, as you write, this kind of bridge, I suppose, in Eurasia between Germany, um, between Russia and China, and had those kind of energy sort of um, interests as well that it, it, it's sort of managed? Oh, definitely. Look, when we think about Germany, most people think about Germany as the political actor that has a seat at the General Assembly, like you know, any, any other country in the United Nations. And that's true. That is Germany. Its population is about 83, 80 million, let's say. But the real Germany is the economic Germany. That's called Greater Germany. And that is the economic system of more than double that, over 200 million people. Um, and so you've got countries on the west of Germany, like Austria, Switzerland, you know, the Netherlands. Um, Germany trades more with the Netherlands than with its immediate neighbor, France. Okay? And the eastern part of Germany, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, uh, Hungary, and so on, uh, it, it, Germany trades, trades more with some of those countries than with its other neighbor, like Italy. And the, the point here is that this greater Germany is an economic component which manufactures some of the, you know, the, the prestige cars. There's no other country in the world that can manufacture, you know, the top five uh, luxury cars, uh, like, I don't know, Mercedes. I, I, I'm just not an ad for them. I'm just making the point mm. that, that, you know, Mercedes, uh, uh, what is it, Audi, Porsche, uh, Volkswagen, these are high-quality automobiles, precision engineering, and that's the only country that can do it. Uh, and that's not Germany. It's greater Germany. And it gets its cheap gas to do all this from Russia. Now, that would make uh, Northwestern Europe, you know, a German-French cooperation, an independent actor in world affairs. The United States wants to prevent that. That's the entire point of NATO, you know, from the, from the very beginning. And so the broader objective, which people aren't realizing, is this is not really that much about weakening Russia, which is what the United States says it's trying to do, but rather it's about subordinating uh, the European Union, and it's promoting the interests of the Eastern European states, like Poland, you know, the Baltic states, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, uh, and, and, of course, Ukraine. And those states are more likely to support American geopolitical objectives than France and Germany. And so it's that weakening of greater Germany as an economic 
system as well as as an independent political actor in world affairs that is behind this unflagging U.S. support for Ukraine. And I should just say that I, I do support the idea that any country that's been invaded should be given the right to defend itself and the, the, the wherewithal. But the objective beyond the war is, is something that's not, not really been remarked on. Yeah, and uh, I mean, you've mapped how there's been these vast changes, um, you know, partly coming out of our experience with the pandemic, but also really exacerbated and I suppose accelerated through Russia's invasion of Ukraine to, you know, the world order, if I can use those um, that term in inverted commas. But some countries are sort of acting, I suppose, as if there haven't been these kinds of changes. And while we're seeing uh, particular countries in, in the global south adopting this position of, of neutrality or non-alignment, we've got Australia um, in some ways... Uh, uh, you know, cozying up more to the United States through things like the AUKUS arrangement. I mean, can you imagine Absolutely. Australia adopting a position of non-alignment as it, you know, historically has, has you know, more and more struggled to balance the, the sort of trade economic ties with China and its military alliance with the United States? No, I think that uh, we, uh, we don't have non-alignment in our political DNA. Uh, we are a sub-imperial power. We uh, are most anxious about the United States when it's not paying enough attention to us, not when it's acting in a violent way around the world. Uh, we were most anxious about Britain when it wasn't paying enough attention to us, not when it was subjugating other countries. And so uh, our strategy has always been uh, to be a sub-imperial power that upholds the U.S. imperial order or the rules-based international order, to use euphemism. Uh, and so, no, we, the AUKUS, the whole point of AUKUS is to bind us ever more tightly into uh, the North Atlantic uh, system, you know, the United States-UK system. Um, and the thinking among our defense strategists appears to be that this was going to be a decade to two, three, four decade-long confrontation with China uh, in an attempt to control the global south and to control the rest of the world to divide to China. And so we might as well forget about being independent and let's just, uh, you know, all, all in with, uh, with the United States. I think that's a mistake, uh, but th that is where we happen to be. In the absence of a peace movement or even a debate about this in Parliament um, or any kind of critical, very little critical commentary um, among the dominant media organisations, um, I think that's where we are going to be headed. Yeah, and just to cycle back briefly to the war in Ukraine itself, it's been called uh, as a war of attrition or becoming a war of attrition with no real end in sight. How do you see that evolving over you know, the next year or, or the years ahead? Can you see any possible resolution or, or peace being brokered in, in sort of parts of Ukraine at all or, or just vast uncertainty, as has been said by many people? Uh, well, look, uh, wars contain elements of the irrational. Okay, they contain pride, fear, ego, humiliation, and, and, and these subjective factors aren't really able to be calculated in a political science level, not, not precisely. And so whenever these wars start, they finish only when one side decides to give up, not when it's losing in the battlefield as such. And so these irrational elements are very hard to predict. Um, but consider a, a close comparison of a high-intensity conflict, which is the Korean War, when North Korea invaded the South in, in June 1950, the front line effectively stabilized by the middle of 1951. But the fighting continued until the middle of 1953, with very little shift to the, to the eventual front line. And so it may well be that this thing just keeps going, keeps going, as long as Ukraine is willing to fight and the West is willing to support it. You know, Russia isn't going to back off. Uh, and therefore, the front line, which is basically in the, you know, the Donbass areas, uh, may be where we're stuck, you know, for the next few years, unless there is uh, uh, some international peace mediation. 
and there'll be elections in that time, of course, uh, you know, in, in the coming years, including in the United States as well. So you wonder how that oh, yeah. impacts dynamics. Look, the next 18 months are going to be extremely dangerous for us because there'll be elections not just in the United States in 2024, but also in Taiwan uh, in 2024. And unlike, unlike Ukraine, Taiwan is an island that cannot be resupplied you know, from, from, you know, by, by land. It has no friendly border, a you know, border with any friendly states as such. And so it's, uh, those elections, if China decides to make a move at the time, or if, if Taiwan, uh, with American backing, you know, our backing, decides to get a bit more adventurous, then the whole thing could, could you know, we could be in serious trouble on this side. So the next 18 months uh, are actually a decisive moment decisive period um, in geopolitical history. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to give listeners more things to worry about, but it's, um, it's super important to have um, your analysis always on the show, Clinton, because, um, you know, what's been unfolding there, I know that, that many Australians, many listeners have been following very closely, and I think it's really important to reflect more broadly on what this means um, for Australia's place in the world as well. Um, thanks so much for coming on the show and hope to speak again in the future. Thank you. Uh, look, I was pleasantly surprised last time, just like I am this time, that your questions were, you know, very well-researched and thoughtful <laughs> and, and, you know, with the respect for the listener. Thank you. Oh, Shucks, thank you so much. And, um, yeah, always great to have you on the show. Triple R. It's been a devastating few weeks for the people of Turkey and Syria who have continued to endure the, the trauma and massive clean-up following a major earthquake. The death toll is in the tens of thousands and while there have been some miraculous tales of survival, as the days wear on, the prospect of finding missing people alive grows slimmer. International teams have headed to the region to help with the relief effort, but there's also been criticism that help has been far too slow to arrive um, and particularly found wanting in relation to the government. Uh, Tejkan Gumush is an ex expert in Turkish democracy and joins me now on the line. Hey, Tez, great to have you back on the show, but in really unfortunate circumstances. Oh, I just want to say hello. Thanks for having me on, Dylan, and just want to add good morning to everyone that's listening. Um, yes, it's been a pretty devastating couple of weeks for not just Turks, but obviously Syrians as well, uh, who are already affected by uh, the civil war there. So and this is, a, I guess, another... Uh, catastrophe that they were ill-prepared, uh, let alone um, the Turkish government, which is, I guess, it, it's traditionally been probably in a, in a better, a better, uh, I guess, environment to be able to handle these things. Yeah. I wonder if you can talk to us about the particular region that's been hardest hit, just sort of near the Syrian border. What kind of a place is it in, and, and who sort of lives there and that kind of thing? Yeah, so southeast Turkey, I, I'm guessing you may be alluding to Hatay, mm. which is the, I guess, the southeastern corner of Turkey bordering Syria, uh, which has been a very historical uh, city. Where, um, so it's, it's very cosmopolitan and very intellectual. It has always been that way throughout its history. So a lot of um, ancient churches, ancient synagogues, and obviously uh, mosques as well. So a lot of Arabs. Um, ethnic Turks, but also after the Syrian conflict, a lot of uh, Syrians moved there as well, but also across that, that region that's been affected. Um, and they, you know, from all reports, a lot of this Hatay has been levelled. Um, uh, and uh, Marash, Gaziantep, Kilis, all these major cities around uh, the border region 
which is as of, uh, as a large Kurdish population, as well as, as I guess Turkish populations. Well, along with on top of in the last ten years, Syrian uh, refugees who predominantly reside in that area too. So, um, if we think about Syrian refugees, you know these people have gone through uh, extreme. Um, upheaval in, in in the last 10 years and then to have moved to somewhere that they thought was uh, safe for them uh, have gone through this a decade later is also another sort of trauma that they're living through as well. Yeah, and I mean, this was a, a massive earthquake, 7.8 uh, magnitude. Has there been any sort of major significant earthquakes in that region in sort of recent history? Not um, at that level, there was one in, uh, around similar area uh, a, a few years ago. Again, but the, the only one that was um, similar to that size was 1999. But this was more in the uh, Marmara region, so just outside of Istanbul, um, in Izmit, Karamusaz, um, Bursa region, which levelled um, the city uh, cities and, uh, and towns there in 1999. So 24, 25 years ago. Yeah, and, and I mean, how's it been for you, sort of watching from afar? Obviously, you know, I'm sure you've got many friends and family members over there. Where have you gone for your news of what's coming out to get a handle on, you know, this really tragic and, and overwhelming in a lot of ways devastation that's been wrought um, uh, following on from the quake? Yeah, personally, it's been a devastating. I, I won't lie, you know, I, I have shed many a tears. Um, the, the more sort of... Uh, Stories that you hear, first first person accounts, um, journalistic accounts who have gone there. Where I get my news is usually independent news sources from um, social media, which is YouTube. Uh, as we know in Turkey, 90% of the media, mainstream media, news channels and newspaper is under the direction of the government, so very pro-government. So there's a lot of propaganda or pro-government bias which uh, has hidden. Um, a lot of deficiencies and inadequacies of the um, coordination and the efforts of government and government-aligned uh, organisations and agencies. So I would definitely um, ask viewers, or sorry, your listeners, to, <laughs> if they want uh, a real credible, trustable sources, to, to go and seek um, certain YouTube channels, yeah. which I guess it's a little bit harder when you don't speak the, speak the Turkish language. Um, but DW is really good. Um, if you know uh, Deutsche Bella, which is a German-sponsored um, English channel, would be very good, uh, and BBC. So if you're looking for more mainstream but non-Turkish um, uh, media, yeah, and I mean for any crisis like this, I suppose there's an extent to which you can plan for it, and and you know develop and build buildings that are able to withstand earthquakes or not, you know, simply sort of crumble in the event of something. But, I mean, 7.8 magnitude is absolutely huge. I understand in, in the wake of, um, excuse the pun, but that, that massive earthquake, or well, the big earthquake in 1999, there was an earthquake tax levied, um, but there's been sort of a lack of clarity about how that money has been spent and whether it has been put into mitigating the event of, of future um, earthquakes. What's your sense of that? I mean, could there have been better planning uh, around preparing areas for this kind of crisis? I think that is the main question that people are asking. There has been billions and billions of dollars collected by government over the last um, decade or two by the AKP or Erdogan, Erdogan government. I mean, look... 
When I say AKP, I mean Aslan because AKP is completely controlled, personalised under Aslan. So I think if I use them interchangeably, know that I'm referring to Aslan's government because he sort of controls it from start to finish. Now, where this where this tax levy has gone, no one knows, and I think this is the outcome of when you have an unaccountable government which is controlled by one person. All appointments, political appointments, uh, bureaucratic appointments are beholden to this one person. There is absolutely no transparency in government, and the government does not give account um, when asked about what's going, what happened to this uh, money. But this is with this is very much systematic of, of the way Erdogan uh, rules the country. So there is absolutely no transparency at all. The other thing is there is a lot of um, systematic uh, uh, corruption especially at corruption at construction level. As we know, Turkey and the AKP, it has been driven, like the economy has been driven by construction. And so a lot of low-level and high-level corruption has existed just to continue the construction boom and also give out, um, you know, states contracts to close associates, close uh, construction companies aligned with the government. I mean, one main thing which, yes, there are, there, there's, on paper there's regulations that were imposed after 1999, but, you know, in theory that's fine, but when they're not being followed and uh, adhered to, um, and also uh, uh, by government authorities, then that is a major issue. So one thing we, you know, I can point to is example is uh, when there was a construction amnesty in, 20, uh, amnesty, sorry, in 2018, where the government said, look, we know that these um, buildings, shoddy buildings that don't meet um, compliance do exist, but instead of knocking them down, what we're going to do is um, offer companies opportunity to pay and then we'll bring them officially in line with um, as being complying with building regulations. I mean, that is mind-blowing to think that buildings, there are thousands and thousands of buildings out there which are shoddy, but because they paid this... Uh, bill or, or fine that the government is ticked off on the saying yet they, they met um, building compliance. And there, in the area alone that was leveled, so uh, where the earthquake is, 75,000 buildings um, were actually um, part of this amnesty. So uh, 75,000 buildings which don't meet building regulations, building standards, but because they're construction companies and developers paid this uh, fine, they're act, you know, of all of a sudden um, deemed as complying with uh, standards. I mean, it's absolutely yeah. mind-blowing. So these are, there's a lot of things that the government is at fault and ha could have mitigated over the last 20 years, which would have stopped a lot of these uh, people from dying, from these uh, buildings from collapsing. Yeah, well, wow. Speaking with Tejkan Gumush, expert on Turkish democracy, about the, the devastating earthquake um, over in that part of the world. And, I mean, Erdogan is facing election in a few months' time in June. Uh, obviously, as you mentioned earlier, there's, you know, state control of media and that kind of thing and, and a lot of propaganda. But are people really sort of asking these very serious questions about the government and, and sort of, I, I suppose, putting Erdogan on notice ahead of those elections in, in a few months' time? Yes, I mean, there's a lot of massive public outcry if you listen to independent media. Um, the opposition alliance, the six-party opposition alliance, along with people, along with parties that, that don't belong to this six-party alliance, 
uh, are constantly asking these questions, so that, which is good. They're, they're, they're keeping in, in people's focus. Um, like I said, at the grassroots level, there's a massive level of outrage. But the government, instead of coming out and embracing and empathising with people's hurt and anger um, and actually apologising, has actually come out and said um, that we're, we're going to hunt down people on social, social media who are making these claims, who are being critical of us, we're actually keeping account of anyone that is being critical of us. They've actually gone and done the opposite of what sh a responsible government should have done. And they've actually gone and continually threatened um, people uh, for being critical of, of their response. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I mean, this, the thing is, we don't know whether the elections are going to be held mm. in May. Um, the government is actually flagging that they want to somehow and postpone elections for another year. Now, this is completely unconstitutional. It's, it, it, it'll be trampling on the Constitution, but this is a government that has um, consistently trampled on the Constitution. Um, where it suits it, it'll, it'll abide by it. When it doesn't suit it, it'll sort of um, bend and break the rules and, and come up with new rules and laws to accommodate for its uh, wishes. Yeah, yeah, I, I did say June, but of course I meant May. The election's coming up um, in in a few months' time, and so is that a very real prospect that the election could be postponed? And what might be the implications of that if there is really substantial public criticism of Erdogan and that uh, you know growing criticisms from opposition parties and the like? Well, I guess that is the, that is one that is the main reason to avert um, or postpone or uh, put the election to the later date mm. is to try to hopefully for the government for that animosity and that anger to simmer down and to somehow try winning um, hearts and minds um, through some sort of patronage policies and so forth. Um, so I'm not sure. The re the realistically, I do think that the opposition might be willing to push, reschedule the elections back for another month. But Constitutionally, the, uh, it, 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 the time frame is the elections need to be held by June 15th or 16th. So anything further than that, I don't think the uh, opposition will agree to. Um, but I think realistically, yes, uh, in May, it might be a little bit too soon to hold the elections, given that 12 million people have been affected by it. Um, but, yeah, after anything after June, I don't think is... is unless, you know, it's blatantly sort of breaking um, laws by, by the government. Yeah, and we know that Erdogan has appealed to a sense of nationalism to try to galvanise support. There's, I suppose, on the international arena, um, a, a lot of, uh, you know, that's been said around disallowing Norway and Sweden to join NATO and that kind of thing as well. Is there a sense that, that he might try to kind of use this crisis or is using this crisis to serve political ends, at least as we see it now? I know there's, you know, still a lot of people just kind of working out exactly you know, how to rebuild and, and trying to track down loved ones and the like. But, but to what extent is politics playing into Erdogan's response? Oh, it, it's all politics. Mm. Um, like I said, just as I said previously, trying to clamp down... I mean, this is going to be used to clamp down an opposition criticism even more so. And it's like, as I alluded to a flag before, it's being now used to postpone elections for another year. And now, even if they're postponed for another year... You know, there's a lot of, um, I guess, experts and analysts that would say, well, if it gets postponed for another year, Turkey might not even have any democratic elections after that. Because in that meantime, 
the government will use all those powers at its, at its hands to completely repress opposition, uh, societal and political um, opposition from organising against it again. So if elections don't go ahead in the next few months, there's actually a good chance that people are saying that it might not even go ahead uh, again um, because Erdogan knows that he is very close to losing an, an even open election uh, against opposition, given how bad the economy has gone for, uh, for many, many years, given the level of repression, and given that there is a galvanised uh, six-party opposition, which is very united um, uh, and is, is basically a very strong challenger towards, uh, against him. So yeah. he knows that. So there, he'll, be able to, he'll be looking to thwart and, and avoid getting into a, a, a sort of an open race with them. And just lastly, Tez, I know a lot of people watching from afar would, would want to help wherever they can, but not, might not exactly know where to turn. What are some places that, that people you know, might, might turn to to offer donations and that kind of thing to, to help in some way with the situation over there? Yeah, of course. I've, I've got a few, um, a, a, couple, a handful of places, civil society organisations that I, I definitely can recommend, um, highly credible, highly trustworthy. Um, and I, I, I say civil society because government institutions and state um, institutions that have been charged with organising and, and, uh, and sort of uh, rescue efforts and, and looking after people who are affected, there's actually a lack of trust um, uh, in society, hence why these civil society groups have come in and, and are doing a, a fantastic job in a highly trust, uh, trustable. But the first one I would say AHBAP, which is A-H-B-A-P. And this is uh, one of the key civil society organisations that popped up in this earthquake. And like I said, highly trust, trustworthy. And their website, you can sort of uh, switch to English as well, so it's easy to donate money. The other one I would definitely recommend, which gets left there, but being a very much animal lover myself, is Animal Rights Federation in Turkey, or HITAP in its Turkish acronym. Again, their, their um, website is, is English user-friendly, so you can definitely switch, switch your language to English and donate there, because there's a lot of animals that need help um, and need shelter. Um, I don't know if anyone's been to Turkey, but there's a lot of street animals that, that do exist in Turkey, so they've been highly affected. Um, the other one is Bridge to Turkey Fund, so which is BTF, uh, US-based, but um, but run by Turkish Turkish academics and intellectuals, which is a, which is another one. Uh, Project Hope is an American-based one, which um, deals more with um, health uh, issues. So a lot of uh, I guess um, women's um, women's I guess pads and tampons and also, and also just general hygiene products that definitely are needed in the region. Okay, that's... Uh, yeah, so that'll be the, the... I don't want to sort of overwhelm people, but three, three or four is enough. Yeah, so Project Hope, Animal Rights Federation in Turkey, Bridge to Turkey funds, and there was one other one you mentioned at the beginning. What was the spelling for that one again, Tez? Yes, AHPAP. So that's... AHPAP, that... which is A-H-B-A-T. A-H-B-A-P. Fantastic. It's been um, so great having your insights on the show. Um, always value your contributions to The Grapevine and I um, hope to catch up again soon and, and keep well. I know it must be a really tricky time for you at the moment. Yeah, thanks, Dylan. Thanks for having me on. It was a very tough time the last couple of weeks. I've shed a lot of tears, like I said. So um, please, if you can, um, support, donate. Um, if 
not, then, you know, the well wishes are, yeah, are enough. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.